Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mike C, is it off? There we go. All right, I'm chained it to the pulpit. <laughs> That's all right. So this week we're um, starting a sermon series on the first epistle of St. John to the church. And um, this is your yearly reminder, bring your Bibles with you to church, friends. We as Anglicans are people of the prayer book, yes, but we are more importantly people of the word of God. And you will want your Bibles to take notes, to look at, to reference, and uh, perhaps even if you're the highlighting sort to do that. Um, so I, I do ask that you bring your Bibles with you or look at things on your phone um, and the sermons will make much more sense with that in front of you. As usual, when we start a book series, there are things that are helpful to know about the book that we're about to read. And First John is called an epistle. It's often called a Catholic epistle. First of all, let's start with the epistle. Does everybody know what that word means? It's an older word. What's it mean? A letter. letter. Good. It's a letter. So this is a letter written to the church. Why do we call it a Catholic epistle? I'll give you a hint. There's several others that are called Catholic epistles. The book of James, 1st and 2nd Peter, all three epistles of John, and the book of Jude. So that end portion of scripture before Revelation. Why are they called Catholic epistles? Well, I'll give you the answer. Catholic epistles are written to the entire church, to the church Catholic. And therefore, when we look at one of these epistles, we see that the author is talking not to a particular church like Rome or the church in, in Ephesus uh, particularly, but to the wider church, to the church Catholic, to the church universal. So look with me at 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to dig right in today. 1 John chapter 1. We read this in the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Let's stop there just for a moment. So, we look at the beginning of this letter, one of the first things that should jump out of you is that it's not addressed to anyone particularly, right? It's starting out with a theological statement, and instead of addressing somebody in the classical ancient letter sense, what is the author doing? He's stating something firmly. He's actually stating a doctrine, a dogma of the faith, 
and he's making a statement of fact about himself. Do you see that? What's he saying? Who's he talking about? Who is... Well, first of all, maybe you didn't notice that he's talking about a who and not just a what. Right? Do you see? What is he talking about here? That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who is this? Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Right. So don't miss that, that St. John here is talking about Jesus Christ. And what's he saying? He's saying, I have seen I have heard, I have looked upon, I have touched this. Does this sound familiar? It sounds very much like the end of John's Gospel where he says, I witnessed these things. Right? So John is here making a statement of who he is and what he's witnessed. He's witnessed Jesus Christ. A lot of the people reading this letter never met Jesus Christ in the flesh, much like all of us, right? have never met Jesus in the flesh. However, he has and speaks with authority. What is St. John communicating? He's communicating this authority. And while John does not explicitly say so, he masterfully ties this letter's beginning back to the fourth gospel. Notice, what does this sound like? Not a trick question. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? So he's speaking here, tying things directly back to his gospel, the gospel of St. John. Now, I was uh, doing some research this week and came across an interesting point made by um, New Testament scholar and Roman Catholic priest Raymond E. Brown, who says that John is not just writing a letter here. But if we study this, we see that he's reading, he's actually writing a commentary to the church. This is an early commentary. Does everybody know what that is? Some of you have study Bibles, right? So what's a study Bible? You look at the verse, and then you look down at the footnote, and it tells you a little bit more, right? A commentary is like that, right? It's a book that tells you a little bit more about what's going on beneath the text. It expounds upon the text. And so St. John here is saying, I am expounding upon my gospel. Do you want to know what I meant by it? Let me tell you what I meant by it. And so in addition to being a letter, an epistle, it's also a commentary. And St. John's going to speak here in his letter about his interpretation about what's going on in his gospel. Why? Why would he feel the need to do that? Again, not a trick question. Because people are interpreting his gospel wrongly. There is error creeping up into the church in several areas, and he wants to stay, stand up and say, no, that's not what that meant. Here's what it meant. And let me show you. And because he is a witness of Christ himself, he has the authority as no other, except other apostles, have to do, right? This is an apostolic authority. And it's important to note that this 
letter is thought by scholars to have been written about 85 AD. So that's right after the time that his gospel is written. Look at verse 3b through 4 with me. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So he needs to correct some things, yes. Why does he need to correct some things? Well, he tells us. What? What's his purpose? Fellowship. Absolutely. Fellowship. That you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So he wants their good. And you can actually translate that last line that, that our joy may be complete. You can also translate that, and some of you probably have notes in your Bible to this effect, that your joy may be complete. Actually, the, the word in Greek has only got one different letter between our and your, just like in English. And so we're not sure which it is. Some manuscripts have it one way and some have the other. But suffice it to say, he wants us to have a more perfect fellowship with God and with one another. And therefore, he needs to correct some things. That's his end goal. The second end goal is that our joy may be full and that his joy may be full. So what's wrong with the fellowship? What's wrong with the fellowship? We actually don't know. Uh, there's a lot of speculation as to who John or what John was specifically addressing. Some people think that it was the Gnostic community, which, you know, again, in shorthand, they believe basically that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good and that the key, there's a key to hidden knowledge in that, right? We still see echoes of Gnosticism in our day today, um, that somehow the body is evil. Another uh, hypothesis is that he was dealing with a group called the Docetists, or the Docetists, who believed that the body was bad. They were like the Gnostics in that way, but they also believed that Jesus didn't really suffer on the cross, that God wouldn't lower himself to that, that somehow Jesus got out of that suffering because he was God. You see the connection to the body thing there? Body and suffering, well, that's, that's icky. Jesus, God, wouldn't do that. Right? There's another group that he's writing against, too, that we know historically is around at this time, and they're called the Ebionites. And the Ebionites think that Jesus is just a normal man, that Jesus just was a normal man, he wasn't the Son of God, that he grew in his faith like anybody else and was just a really good guy. Well, it's interesting, we hear echoes of that in our culture today, actually, with all sorts of misleading teachings. We don't know which group. We know, however, that Paul, or Paul, sorry, St. John is actually writing against several beliefs, right? Let's take a minute, however, and stop there. We'll return to that soon and look at St. John himself. So what do we know about St. John? Um, well, 
We know that Jesus gives him his mother to care for at the foot of the cross, right? Behold your son, he says to Mary and to to St. John, behold your mother, right? And so we know that that John was tasked with that. We also know that John escaped Jerusalem before its destruction in A.D. 70. So in A.D. 70, the apostles fled from Jerusalem and were scattered. Um, Eusebius, a church historian from the 200s, tells us that they went to different places in that scattering. That St. Thomas went to Parthia, which is modern-day Iran. That Andrew went to Scythia, which is modern-day Eastern Europe. And that St. John went to Asia sometimes called Asia Minor, if you've ever heard that term, which is modern-day Turkey, right? These were Roman provinces. And so from A.D. 85 to A.D. 95, the ancient historian tells us that John was encouraged to write his gospel in response to the Ebionites. We do know that. So that's why some people think that this letter is written against them too. John was exiled under, under the emperor Domitian, and then returned to Ephesus, Ephesus, where he died after being in exile on the island. So 1 John was likely written to churches around Ephesus and passed around that region of the Roman province, but then circulated amongst the wider church. Whatever was the wrong system that 1 John, the epistle, is writing against, it can, be, it can be surmised that he was writing against the system itself. And again, bear with me, we have to look closely at what's going on in the text here. So who's St. John writing against? We don't know. What beliefs is he writing against? We do know. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7. through 7. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. All right, there's a lot there, right? So let's break that open. First of all, we see that St. John says God is light. That should sound familiar from the gospel passage as well, where Jesus himself calls himself the light of the world. We can deduce by that that the opponents somehow don't think that light is important. And we're not just talking about physical light here. We're talking about spiritual light, enlightenment, right? Number two, that fellowship with God is directly connected to walking in the light. Okay, there's a causal connection between searching after the light and walking in fellowship with God. You can't have a relationship with someone who is the light if you don't care about the light. 
Number three, walking in the light yields fellowship with one another through the blood of Jesus. That we have to walk in the light and be in fellowship with the light to be in true fellowship with one another. And again, the opponents don't believe this, right? So that's what, that's what he's writing against. So let's look now at verse 8, right? What specifically is said there. If we, have no, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? So the opponents say that Jesus... His blood doesn't matter, that it's unnecessary, and that it's unefficacious, that it has no effect. But St. John says, oh no, it has all the effect. And finally, confession brings forgiveness. As the opponents say, confession is unnecessary. And St. John says, no, confession is at the core of who the church is. So it appears that St. John is opposing the people who have created division into the church by sowing these seeds of bad doctrine that eventually corrupt the dogma of the church, the truth. Look at it, looking at it together, because I know there's a lot there. Here's the summation. The opponents don't believe in the light of God's truth. They deny belief and practice are connected. They think the blood of Christ is unnecessary. They do not believe they are all sinful. And they de deny the effectiveness or power of forgiveness. Those are the five points. St. John's writing these believers because he wants to encourage them with the truth of the gospel and to reassure them that Jesus, in fact, has covered their sin. And that they don't need to worry about that. Look at 1 John 2.1. My little children, he writes to them, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world, the whole world. Do you see St. John here is circling back? The atonement, the use of blood, Christ's blood upon the cross is effective and does bring forgiveness of sin. And yet we ought not to walk in sin. Look at 1 John 3 and 4. And we know this, that we know that we have become, I'm sorry, we know that we have come to know him if we, could, if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God, is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Verse 6, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Jesus, walked. So there is a connection for St. John between belief and practice, between what we think with our mind and hold as true 
and how we live our lives. Truth and goodness are inseparable. They're inseparable. They're one thing. You can't believe in the truth and not be good. You can't seek to be good and not care about the truth. They're one and the same, says St. John. There's an intellectual side. There's a practical, ethical side. He uses the word here to, to translate it as know. It's a Greek word, ginosko, to know God, to know God. It doesn't mean just to have knowledge of God, but it means to feel him, to become known by him, to perceive him, to understand him. And you can't do that with a person if you're not with him. You can't claim to know God and be known by God if you don't try to obey him. There's not a disconnect between faith and practice, he says. So look at verses 10 and 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now that's next week's reading, so we're going to dig into that more next week. But suffice it to say that the two are mutually exclusive. You, 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 cannot, you cannot say that you love God and hate your brother. What does this say to the church? Well, a couple things. Number one, beliefs matter. Doctrine and dogma matters. Whether it's true, truth matters. The Christian has an obligation to seek the light because Jesus Christ himself said, I am the light. He also said he is the word, the way, and the truth. The intellect, there's an intellectual virtue associated with this practice, and it's a word that we use all the time and don't necessarily think of as a virtue. It's the word that gnosko can be translated to. It's the word understand. So what of the intellectual virtue of understanding? Do you have that? There are people who don't. There are people who are apathetic. There are people who don't care. There are people who don't want to know the truth. That's a sin. It's a sin of the intellect. We have to want to know the truth. And because it's a virtue, it means it's something that we can build in ourselves. Of course, with the power of the Holy Spirit. That we have to habitualate, habitualize ourselves to want to know. That we don't naturally always want to know or understand. Our most eminent Anglican theologian, Richard Hooker, who lived uh, from, the, from 1554 to 1600, writes this. He says, goodness is seen with the eye of understanding. Goodness is seen with the eye of understanding. He's talking about this intellectual virtue here. If you don't have that virtue, if you don't want to know the truth, if you're lazy, if you're epistemically vicious, is the, is the philosophical way to say that, so that means that you really don't care, then you're not going to see goodness. You're not going to see goodness. Your soul will not be so inclined. Hooker goes on to say, and the light 
of that eye is reason. So the eye is understanding, and the light of that eye is reason. Did you realize that you have an obligation to think as a Christian? I know for some people that just sounds silly, but you have an obligation to think, to use the mind that God gave you to seek out his truth. Far from the idea that we leave our brain at the doorstep of the church, far from the idea that we don't apply reason to interpret God's word, along with other things. We are to use that mind and build that virtue. Why do we take classes? Why do we listen to expository sermons? Why do we search things? Why do we take books out of the library or look at commentaries or have study Bibles or bring our Bibles to church? We do that so that we can grow in the virtue of understanding. Many people don't see that as a virtue. But I ask you, see it as a virtue and go after it. It's actually a sin to not use that God-given faculty. It's a sin to not care about it. It's a sin to not care about the truth because what you're saying is, I don't care about Jesus. There's no shortcut to developing that. Second, in human nature, in all human beings, there is a connection between belief and practice. What we do affects what we believe, and what we believe affects what we do. I had a professor in college that said, ideas have consequences, and boy, is that true as we look at history. Ideas have consequences. You see it in your own life. If you believe that exercising, for example, is healthy, and you never go and exercise, the belief that exercise is healthy is not strengthened, and neither is your exercise. However, if you believe that exercise is healthy and you go exercise, what happens? Both get strengthened because you start to train yourself, body and soul, that that thing is important. And so your spirit, your, your soul, is, is exercised by your body. There's a connection. We believe that as human beings. We'll talk about that more in some coming weeks. Finally, any belief system that claims that the blood of Christ is unnecessary or insufficient is false and needs to be called out by the church. These false gospels, these quasi-truths that creep into the church, and they have for millennia, ultimately say that Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross wasn't enough. You have to do this, too, or you have to do that, too. They're constantly assaulting the church. St. John talks about people that teach that as antichrists. Antichrists aren't people that come at the end of the world with horns, the things of, you know, left behind. That's not what St. John's talking about when he talks about antichrists. Antichrists are anyone who preaches incomplete and false gospel. What false gospels are assaulting the church? There are many. And we need not be led astray by them if we're anchored in the truth. We'll talk about that more in the next few weeks. For now, I want you to ask yourself going forward this week, number one, 
what priority do I put on learning and on truth? Do I care about he who is the word of life and the way, the truth? Number two, where do I see false belief systems that threaten the gospel by denying the necessity or sufficiency of Christ's blood? Where do I see that in the church today or trying to get in? Finally, is there darkness in my life that needs to be brought into the light that is not in concert with my Master and Lord Jesus Christ? Are there areas where I'm inconsistent? We can all say, yes, there are. Let me answer that question for you. So what areas are they? And how is the Holy Spirit working on you to straighten that out? Let's go forth in this epistle, learning from the great apostle, who tells us to love one another, who tells us that belief and practice matters, and who tells us that Jesus' blood is sufficient In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.